This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm your writer in residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, we welcome Gabriela Godinez Ferragrino, editor of Street Vibes, the newspaper published by the Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition. Gabriela graduated from Ohio University in May of 2018 with a communications degree in media. In school, she studied media production with an emphasis on social change and minored in English. She worked for the OU LGBT Center where she found her love for working with and for the community around her. Her previous employment taught her how to speak on panels, teach advocacy, and engage in grassroots organizing. Welcome, Gabriella. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to have this conversation. Um, so let's jump right in. I, I noticed that in um, every issue of Street Vibes, um, I see that it describes itself as, quote, an activist paper advocating mm-hmm. justice and building community. Talk a bit about the role that the paper plays in the larger landscape of Cincinnati media. Oh, wow. That's such a huge question. Um, I don't necessarily know if larger mainstream media would see us as legitimate media. Um, I hope they do, but I think that sometimes we're at odds with each other, especially in the way that we report on specific issues. If you read something from Street Vibes and you read the same event in another media, in uh, local media, um, it's probably going to be very different because we're coming from the perspective of people who are on the ground, people who are in those environments, people who are actually engaging with the community, people who are there in the middle of protests. Like that's where our perspective comes from in terms of how we're writing. So it tends to be very different because it's a lot more how you're reading a first person account rather than you're reading somebody interviewing somebody who heard something from someone else. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of opinion in a lot of what we write. It's kind of inevitable. If you read Street Fives, you're going to find something that is, I would say, traditionally unbi- or traditionally biased in terms of like what you think of in terms of journal- journalism. But I think that we, as media, don't get to legitimize what stories are important. I think the community already knows what stories are important, and they want to see themselves represented in our medias. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to um, I want to kind of like explore a few of the things that you brought up. But first, let's talk about the model. You know, okay. why is it that the Homeless Coalition publishes a paper? And what's the role of unhoused people in like producing and distributing the paper? So the paper started out as a street paper, and it is a street paper. And what that means is that people come to the Homeless Coalition, purchase the paper for 75 cents, they go out into the streets and to their communities, uh, to different events, and sell the paper for a $2 donation. Sometimes they make more. 
Um, it's We try to make sure that it's a $2 minimum though. And the main purpose of the paper is that income that those people are being provided with. It is a supplemental income. It's not going to save somebody from experiencing homelessness or experiencing poverty, but it might save them from experiencing hunger. And it's not to say that the paper is saving them. It's rather that they have the agency to advocate for themselves because they are able to have that entrepreneurship experience with selling the paper. And a lot of times people experiencing homelessness also have to go to different meetings with caseworkers or they have to talk to a lawyer for whatever specific reason, or they just have a lot going on with their lives that would prevent them from happen from engaging in a nine to five regular, what we think of regular job. So this provides them that agency to have supplemental income in between those hard times where they're trying to find more stable work, more stable housing, et cetera. So that's the main paper. That's the main reason for the paper, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, what we put in the paper to me is secondary because the main reason that we have the paper is so that people experiencing homelessness have some sort of job. Um, and other street papers around the world, we are part of the international network of street papers. So other street papers around the world sometimes take a more, um, I don't want to say like fluff uh, approach, but they'll engage with uh, celebrities or they'll talk about hot topics in uh, entertainment media and things of that nature to make it more, um, I guess, to make it easier for people to want to purchase the paper because they're like, oh, I recognize that person or oh, I know who that person or I love that show or whatever. Um, and that's kind of a split in the street paper um, I guess movement, if you want to call it a movement, there's kind of been a split where people are like, oh, we want to appeal to the masses. So it's easier for people to actually want to purchase the paper. And then other people who are like, no, we want to stay with a more traditional approach of advocating for marginalized groups and uh, marginalized stories. Yeah, I think both are valid. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, for as long as I can, can remember, Street Vibes has certainly fallen on the side of being social justice oriented. Um, so that's not something that's just changed since your tenure, right? It has no, a long-standing no, tradition. No. Yeah, that's what I inherited for sure. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking, um, when we spoke earlier this week, there were two phrases that you used to describe mm -hmm. the writing in the paper that really stood out to me. And one was community writing and the other was social justice writing. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and what you mean when you use those phrases? So to me, community writing is literally what it sounds like, the community writing about themselves, the community advocating for themselves, sharing their experiences, um, more like human interest oriented stories. Um, and then social, social justice writing would be writing with a purpose for call, a call to action or trying to shine a light on some sort of injustice happening in whether that be microscopic in the community or at large within an institution or an idea, perpetuating an idea that might be harmful or rather advocating for ideas to uplift other communities. Um, so I think that they kind of go hand in hand quite often, but community writing can also just be, this is what's happening in our area and this is what mass media might not find interesting, but I think is important to still still talk about because just because it affects less people doesn't mean it's not important to to know that it's happening mm -hmm. um and 
talk a bit more about kind of the brass tacks of how the paper is produced. So is it, do you provide a space within the Homeless Coalition for um, people who are homeless to come in and work on their stories and to talk to you about their experiences and, you know, like what they would like to see reflected in the paper? Yeah, so before COVID, obviously everything has changed structurally after the pandemic. But before the pandemic, uh, we had a writer circle that met every Thursday inside the actual physical coalition. And we would just sit around, we would either really do whatever it is that the people who showed up needed in that moment. And that could range from just having conversations about what's happening in the world or in their lives so that they can start to articulate what they would want to share with people, what they would want to be writing about. It's more of like a think tank ideas circulating kind of moment. Um, but then sometimes it was a lot more practical where it was somebody would come in with a handwritten story and ask us to physically transcribe it. And that's always easier than somebody just turning in a, a handwritten note and then saying, it's done, take it. Uh, because obviously sometimes you can't read it properly. Sometimes, you know, teachers would know all about that. Um, but sometimes also we have questions and we're like, oh, actually, I would really like you for you to expand on this note that you made. Like, what does this mean? Blah, 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 blah. And then that becomes kind of like an editorial process in and of itself while transcribing. And then sometimes people come to share their stories orally and then we transcribe them as well. So it really ranges from whatever it is that person or that community really needs in that moment. Um, and then we also had, uh, we partnered with Peasley Community Center, uh, where we would go to uh, a middle school and talk to a girls writing group that was already established and um, teach them different forms of writing or um, really whatever it is that they wanted us to talk about, but give that agency to younger people as well. So we wouldn't just have people come to the coalition. If we have a standing relationship with a nonprofit, we'll also go out and venture into the world wherever it is they need us to be. Great. Um, in an October editorial, you wrote that Cincinnati experienced a 25% increase in calls for housing assistance from April to June of this year, and a 35% increase in the number of people sleeping without shelter during that same period. You were quoting some kind of report. Um, can you talk a bit about how the pandemic has changed uh, the coalition's work? Yeah, I don't work directly with advocacy and organizing. I work kind of peripherally, obviously, because I would be writing about it for the paper. But from my understanding, um, our work, not only as the coalition, but rather also the organizations underneath that coalition, um, are just completely exhausted. We all of our resources have been exhausted. The funding that came from the government funding that we all know about, it wasn't enough. It just, it, I don't want to say that it's, it's, it's super bleak. I, it, I don't want to make it such a bummer, but the truth of the matter is that so many new people were coming in and so many new faces were, were coming in, which not only means that there's another person or another family that needs help, but they also need to be explained the system. Mm. And when every time you explain the system, and this might be a little self-serving, but every time you explain the system, you realize how broken the system is because you're just like, yeah, no, I know it, I know it doesn't make sense, but this is it. <laughs> this is what we have. 
and then people will get frustrated, people will get angry, and obviously you're the person that's right there, so of course they'll get angry with you, and you're just like, I want to, I want to be mad with you, like, I, I'm so sorry that we just don't have a place for you to stay, or we don't have, um, any resources for you right now. I'm not completely sure about the resources that people in domestic abuse situations were receiving, but I do know that it, it got significantly worse during lockdown and during the pandemic, um, because obviously people were home more, people had less reason to be out of the house. So I just know every problem that we already had pre-pandemic only got worse during the pandemic. So the pandemic did not create problems, did not create um, disparities within people, but it definitely showed all the cracks that we have in our systems and also showed the band-aids that we had in our system that we're like, oh, we'll patch that up a little bit and we'll fix that later. And then the pandemic happens, like, well, there's no later, we need it now, <laughs> we need help now, we need affordable housing now. Like a lot of the problems that we saw with people having to go unsheltered and unhoused um, could have not been a problem at all. Not, uh, not even a problem at all if we just had affordable housing. But we don't. Like a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness have jobs. And that is the most frustrating part of it. It's not that, not to say that somebody's contribution to society in terms of labor is the most important thing about them. But there are people who are literally in jobs which is what a lot of people love yelling at people like just get a job it was just like people have jobs the problem isn't that the problem is affordable housing the problem is affordable health care a lot of people are just one illness away from experiencing homelessness from having to double up with another family which is a form of homelessness it's not just people on the streets and or being hungry at home that also is a form of homelessness it's there's just so many things and you you can't see it all especially because a lot of homelessness isn't physically on the streets. Mm. So I think a lot of times people are like, oh, I help people experiencing homelessness because I donated my mismatched socks. And it's like, I'm sorry, but you really are not helping. The problem is so much deeper and the problem is so much more insidious because we can't see it all the time. Talk more about that, Gabriella. I think many people do not understand that. You know, if you are living with a family member because you can no longer pay your rent or mortgage, that's considered mm -hmm. a form of homelessness. Talk a bit more yeah. about these ways that um, being unhoused is actually invisibilized and people might be experiencing homelessness, but we don't even see it. So sometimes, so homelessness has a million different ways that it can manifest. Sometimes it's people who are doubling up, like I had said, that they are living with another family. They are a two, um, two households within one home. Somebody's not on the lease. That person is experiencing homelessness. Um, it can also be couch surfing. So there's no stable housing at all. They're just moving from family member to family member or from friend to friend. That person is experiencing homelessness. Pretty much if you don't have your name on a lease or on a mortgage, uh, there's a very good chance you're experiencing some sort of homelessness if you are not a dependent, like if somebody's not in charge of you, basically. Um, and a lot of times children who will be experiencing homelessness because they are going hungry when they come home. Their only source of um, food or their main source of food, most consistent source of food would be school. So if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight, if you don't know um, 
where your next form of shelter or shower or, you know, basic human need is, and you're constantly having to plan that, that is a form of homelessness. And that's not something we see. What we, especially in the media, in terms of entertainment media, uh, we see a lot of, oh, the veteran who lives on the street, who has some sort of disability, who can't hold a job, et cetera, et cetera. And while that person does exist, that is not all encompassing of homelessness. And it's not only men, it's women with children, single fathers with children. There are no shelters that take in single fathers with children, or at least not that I know of. So that's also a demographic that's completely ignored. Um, you can also be experiencing homelessness if you live in a motel or a hotel. That is a form of homelessness. So these are all things that can be kind of hidden away, kind of been not completely put under the rug, but rather never been outside of the rug. Mm -hmm. We've never talked about it. We've never really looked at it because it makes us uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times when we acknowledge our own privilege, it makes us feel guilty of, oh, I shouldn't feel bad about what I'm, or somebody's telling me I shouldn't feel bad for what I'm going through because somebody else has it worse. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case, even though that is, I understand a very human reaction. That's not necessarily the case. You should feel thankful that you don't have that and thankful that you have resources, opportunities, energy to then advocate for other people. Because a lot of times people experiencing homelessness are so drained from their own experience that they can't go above and beyond to advocate for themselves. And they shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. We should all be advocating for each other. We should mm -hmm. all be making sure that everybody has a safe place to call home. I think it's honestly ridiculous that we even have to have these conversations. But I also understand that these conversations are not in schools. They're not right. in uh, they're not in workplaces. They're not they're not in your social circles. We're not having these conversations just casually, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So I understand that they're necessary, but it is also very frustrating. Yeah. In the spring when we were in a more um, kind of formal uh, type of lockdown, how did the coalition change? Did you, is it, is the work that, that the coalition does considered an essential service so that it was, so that you, you know, were, were still there in the building? Yes. So we are an essential service because we also handle people's mail, people experiencing homelessness who don't have a stable uh, address or who don't have stable shelter or et cetera, et cetera. Um, we handle all their mail. So I think we handle something like 500 people's mail um, at any given time, which is astounding to me, but that's a whole other conversation. So we opened up a mail window, which is it's very funny because we had this hole in the wall that we didn't know why it existed and it had like a little latch and our building I think used to be they used to sell electrical like wholesale electrical wiring or something like that it was it was an industrial building so there's a lot of little things that we don't know why they're there or like outlets on the floor I don't know it's an old building but we had that hole in the wall and we're like, oh, we can still give people mail and still be safe ourselves. Just put up a piece of plexiglass and still hand out mail. Because we were also thinking, like, if we get sick, there's no one else. There, there's, none, there's no one else that's going to do these things. Which also ended up being a lie. Because I saw a lot of people step up, a lot of volunteers step up and be like, I see that you have now been spread far too thin. 
and I want to help you do administrative work, like giving out mail, like receiving mail and registering the mail and putting them in the mailbox. All that stuff is not hard to do, but it takes so much time. So volunteers really are like, whatever, I got you. And I was, that was astounding because I really thought that people were just going to bunker down and say, nope, just me, just my family. And that also shows how cynical I've become, but it, it was really, it was really amazing. So you've been editor in chief at Street Vibes for two years, uh, since October, 2018, and you're a fairly recent college grad. You graduated Mm -hmm. from college that same year. What was your path to the paper and what drew you to the work that you're doing now? So as a writer, so I studied actually integrated media, which is a communications degree, but it was for documenting screenwriting and media and social change. So I ended up working in a, in a field that I did not study. <laughs> and that really happened because I got very disillusioned with the media industry. I was in a lot of uh, production classes where people just were not listening to me, were taking my ideas and passing them off as their own. Um, I unfortunately became, let, allowed myself to become victim to the, the standard of this is a, a straight white man's world and um, it's going to be very hard for you to break into this world. And I was like, it's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of time women and particularly women of color, we have to decide how much do I love this versus how much does this bring me heartache? So I decided I don't love it enough to be in this world where I just, I, I don't get listened to. I get ignored. The hours were really late. Like you would finish, you would wrap up production at like two in the morning and everyone's like, all right, go home. And as a woman, you're also like, will I make it home today? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Can so you talk about li- really dark? Yeah. Can you, what's your ra- How do you, what's your racial and ethnic identity? So folks have some context for what you're talking about. Right. So I was born in Mexico and I moved here when I was two years old. Um, I became a citizen when I was in seventh grade. I think it was like 12, maybe 13, whatever age you are in seventh grade. Um, So I've been othered my whole life. But the good thing about my childhood experience was that I, I was surrounded by other immigrants. I wasn't necessarily surrounded by the Hispanic or Mexican community, but other people who, who felt that same uh, immigrant experience. Like I had a, an Italian immigrant friend. I had uh, a Taiwanese uh, immigrant friend. I had uh, my absolute best friend who I still talk to to this day uh, is a refugee from Myanmar, from Burma. So like vastly different locations geographically, but very similar in the idea of, okay, I am too American for my friends and family back home, but I'm too wherever it is you're from for my friends and family here. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of that same shared experience. And this is, you grew up in Cincinnati, right? So what Mm -hmm. part of the city were you in that you had this like diverse kind of immigrant experience? Uh, in, in I experience. went to Sycamore schools, Sycamore mm-hmm. Township. I grew up in Blue Ash. Um, though there are a lot of things I later learned were microaggressions and were coded racism. Um, my mother was really good. I think this also talks a lot about how my mother raised me because other friends now looking back will be like, oh, that did happen. Oh, that was really bad. <laughs> like, oh no, that was not a good thing. 
but my mother was so good at hiding all that from me. Um, I like, I remember one time uh, we were walking around and people kept staring at us or for whatever reason. And uh, this was also in a time where there weren't so many immigrants. So like whenever you found any immigrant, you were like, oh my God, be my best friend. So we, we would be walking around in the park and somebody would be staring and my mom was like, it's because you're just so pretty. You're so pretty and they can't get over it. Or if somebody's following you around in the store, like, oh, they just really want to make sure they want to help you, but we're just going to leave because, you know, whatever. And my mother also, like, she, I think Kamala Harris said something like this about her own mother, that all five foot of her, after a conversation you have with her, you leave thinking she's seven feet tall. Mm. So at a thousand percent is my mother. So she really was really good at re- repackaging things for me my mother's gonna hear this and she's gonna be like I never did that that is not true I was always telling you the truth because she did like I would come home and be like we learned about uh remember the Alamo and my mom's just like well don't remember like that is not what happened like these people were protecting their land blah 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 so like I did come home and hear the other side of the coin all the time. So you come through Sycamore, you have this experience where you have a lot of support from your mom. It's this Mm -hmm. kind of like um, diverse immigrant community in many ways. Um, You go to OU, you decide you want to study, you know, production or documentary filmmaking, and you have this experience where you don't feel like you can really get to the, you know, make happen what you want to make happen. It all falls apart. My my bubble that I was living in that was just filled with glitter and (laughs) happiness and everyone's diverse and it's just an amazing place to live was a lie. Mm. (laughs) But I would go to school and then suddenly there would be like trucks following you at two in the morning after the presidential election of 2016 with like Confederate flags in the back let alone the fact that we're a union state, but whatever. Um, Apparently history books don't matter to a lot of people. Um, But like that would be an experience that that was completely foreign to me. That was not something that I had experienced on my own in my youth or younger youth. (laughs) Yeah, because this was in Athens. Now you're talking about being on campus at OU. Yeah, this is when like you're trying to become an adult and also having to come to terms with the fact that other people wish you weren't where you are, that people think that you got into school because of affirmative action or because um, you're a woman or you're given specific legs up when all you can see is all the hurdles and all they can see is how you've passed those hurdles and they can't possibly be from your own merit. It has to be because a white man gave it to you. So you build these organizing skills, it sounds like, uh, on campus as a, as a college um, campus organizer. And then how do you bring that um, analysis? How do you bring that um, kind of like tactical knowledge into the work that you're doing with Street Vibes? Um, I thought about well, it, especially with what you sent me, like how you covered the protest this past summer mm-hmm. and how it really showed the kind of perspective of someone who has a grounding and organizing of some sort. How do you carry that into the work that you do today? Well, I started my English minor specifically because I was seeing a lot of journalists or a lot of journalism students at the protests that I was a part of in school. So I feel like they really taught me whether they knew or they were teaching me or not. They were teaching me from the perspective of representing truly what was happening. 
Um, Cause I would also see, I was there, that's not what happened in this article. Like that's not what happened. Like I, none of this is true. Uh, this is a watered down version or this is forgiving the police or this is forgiving the administration. And I felt that that, oh, well, we want to be unbiased. We want to show both sides. I'm like, no, 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 no. Because there is only one side. The other side just wants to cover it up. And that's the problem. That's what we are trying to address within this protest or within this petition or whatever, what have you. So when I started working for Street Fives, I I did not want to be a part of that. I figured, you know, there is other media that is very forgiving of the oppressive sources. If people, as anyone should, regardless of if you're reading Shiva's or not, you should not be reading <laughs> one media. You, that's not proper, um, that's not being informed what am i trying to say that's yeah that's not being well informed thank right. you that's not being well informed it's just following one news media um but regardless i felt that our role as a street paper was to amplify the perspective and the experience of people who were being actively ignored uh by other more mainstream larger news medias so i think that's evening out the playing field not in one article showing both sides, even if one side is a lie. Because if you show the other side and you're like, well, this is their side of the story. And everyone who was there is like, that is an active lie. That's not unbiased. That's, mm -hmm. that's just not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think the role of journalism isn't to make everyone happy. Like if you're making, if you're not making anyone uncomfortable, that's just propaganda. You, it, journalism, at its truest form is just telling the truth. Whether that pisses people off or not is a completely other conversation, but it's just telling the truth. And I think if you give a platform to people who are active liars or are actively trying to cover things up, that's not, that's not journalism. That's just you engaging in, in their propaganda. My favorite thing to do, my absolute favorite thing to do is when somebody um, sends me an email saying like, I don't agree with this. I'm just like, okay, write about it. Tell us tell us why you don't agree with it and then put it in the paper because you are the paper. I'm not the paper. My boss is in the paper. Like if you, if you don't agree with something, tell us why you don't agree with it. Put sources, put your anecdotal evidence, put your, um, put your statistics, your data into it, write a well-researched piece, advocate for your perspective, and then submit it and then I'll do my line editing, my, whatever, my content editing to make sure that it's the best it can be. Mm -hmm. But submit it and, and tell me, don't put your money where your mouth is. Don't just yell at me. Right. I didn't write it. <laughs> and <laughs> so you write something. Yeah. I mean, so given that, given that that's your approach, what was, how did you, um, how did you take on covering the protest this summer? You know, how did you take on, you know, writing and editing about policing and race in the context of the national rebellions? I think it was really easy. I think if anybody said it was hard to, to write about, then they weren't listening because everyone was telling you all the time what they were thinking, what their perspective was, what they wanted, what the, um, the points of action were. So all you had to go, do was go and you knew what was going on. You knew what people were thinking. Just talk to somebody and be like, why are you here? Um, and they're like this, that, and the other, this is my experience with the police, or this is my, my friend had an experience with the police. And that's why I'm here. Cause I can't stay silent. Um, 
what do you want? Well, we want this, we want reform, we want to defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes people conflicted with one another. And I think that's also important to acknowledge that some people want the complete um, restructuring of the police. They just want from top to bottom, complete restructuring. And then some people are like, no, I just want to defund specific things. I want the demilitarization of X, Y, and Z. And then some people are like, I want a completely different entity. I don't want it to even be related to the police at all. I want a policing form that is community first rather than uh, protecting property first and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's a lot to cover. I think the wor- the hardest part was that there was a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had a photojournalist um, student who was a part of our internship program for the summer who was absolutely amazing. His name is Kelsey Mucker. Um, he goes to UC. Shout out to him because his photography is amazing. And I think that made my job a lot easier because he was telling the story. I just was like articulating what was happening around it, but he was telling the story through his photojournalism. So I think that's another role that journalism plays. It's not just digging up uh, stories or uh, providing historical context or um, doing research. It's also just being a microphone mm-hmm. like hi yes you have more to say about this than I ever will please talk about it mm-hmm. witnessing being present mm-hmm. observing capturing documenting what's happening yeah yeah and even if it affects like the impersonal you like even if it affects you right um as a, a journalist I think that it's important to still always give that mic to someone else because no matter what you are experiencing no matter what your personal experience is somebody else is going to have a different perspective even if you are from the same group of people so i think that it's always important to give the mic to someone else amazing um i always ask my guests what they're reading this is a library podcast after all what are you what are you reading these days um i'm reading what is it called uh we set the we set the world on fire something like that hold on let me bring it up we Set the Dark on Fire by Teller K. Uh, Mejia. I'm only on chapter six. So don't What's it about? Ask me if it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's about like a dystopian world where um, people are paired up for marriage. Like marriage is a transactional um, experience rather than a romantic experience. And it's, so it seems to be that it's a dystopian story, but it's starting out like, here's our utopia. Everything's perfect. Everyone's the same. Uh, we all experience these great things. And then you go into it and it's just like, there's a hierarchy that is unspoken. There is bias that is unspoken, that there are these oppressive forces at work and et cetera, et cetera. And there's like elitism and things of that nature. But the reason I really, really gravitated towards it was because a lot of the rhetorics in Spanish so it's kind of like a bilingual story, a Hispanic-oriented story. And I think a lot of times when we read dystopian novels, um, it's like the white guy comes in and saves the day, which like, you know, I'm not questioning that <laughs> white men can save the day. I'm just saying other people have and will continue to save the day. So maybe have my science fiction reflect that. Please right. and thank you. <laughs> yeah. Give us the title and author one more time. It is We Set the Dark on Fire by Teller K. Mejia. I hope I'm saying that name correctly or else I'm going to get canceled online. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Amazing. And how can people follow your work? We can buy Street Vibes on the street. Yes. Is that the Definitely best first and foremost, always buy street, buy street Vibes because that is directly helping somebody um, experiencing poverty or experiencing homelessness. We don't see any of that money. They come in, buy the paper for 75 cents, and then we, we never see it again. It's up to them what they do. It's completely their own agency. So definitely always do that first. Um, but you can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook in terms of Street Vibes. Let me find that handle for you. It is Cincy with a Y, C-I-N-C-Y, Street Vibes on Instagram. And I believe the same is on Facebook. And then you can also read archived um, Street Vibes articles on cincystreetvibes.com. And also on the website, if anybody wants to submit any articles, um, they, on the website, there's a community calendar that shows all the deadlines. And those deadlines are basically like, if there's a Thursday that says Street Vibes deadline, then the next Thursday is when it prints. Okay. And, there, and there's, it, you lay out the kind of requirements for contributions as well, what people should yeah. do in order to um, submit something that's likely to get published. Yes, 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 yes. And if it's not like ready to be published, that's not necessarily a problem. Uh, it depends on how much work is going on around us, but m more times than not, um, if you reach out and say, here's my first draft or whatever, this is a, a complete article, but I don't know if this is really where it lives and ends, um, you can send that to us and we can still work with you on that. That's not necessarily a problem. Great. Gabriela Godinez Peregrino, thank you so much for your time and for um, sharing more about Street Vibes and your history with us. Um, thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you.